I have had the privilege of the last month to be going around to the different Grace campuses and just getting to see what God's doing in um, Athens and New Hope and, of course, Snellville, where I hail from. Never thought I would live in a place called Snellville. <laughs> but hey, God has big dreams for us all, right? Um, that, yeah. But truly, the Grace family of churches is really a special family. It really, really is, and it's so neat. And I know we get so caught up, as we should, in, in our you know, local campus doing all that God's doing, but uh, it's so great to be reminded that we are a part of a larger family and God's doing great things. But uh, so, it's so good. Last time I was here was six months ago, so lots of really cool changes. It looks amazing here. And I know you guys are so blessed to be under Ben and Sarah's leadership here. And what a great team. Yeah? And those are the best announcements I've ever heard in my life. Julie, thank you so much. I, let me tell you, as someone who's been around church for a long time, I've heard some really bad announcements. So, Julie, thank you for that. And thank you for that great introduction, Master. Uh, just joking, because two weeks ago, um, I did graduate from uh, a master's degree. And uh, yeah, so that's where that joke came from. So... Yes, thank you. I'm glad it's over. Um, yeah, it was a long, long journey, but a long, fruitful journey. And it was a master's um, in, uh, it's called the Master's of Arts in Worship and Theology. And for the last 20 years, um, this has kind of been the orientation of my heart, is studying uh, the worship of God and what it means for the people of God to gather together in worship. I um, am one of the worship leaders at Grace Snellville, but also work for a nonprofit ministry that trains worship leaders from all over the U.S., um, and even other parts of the world. So kind of this has been what I have given my, my heart, my life mission to, and even vocation for the last 20 years. And 20 years into it, I feel like I've taken a rowboat out into the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> much less the Pacific, the Indian, and the Arctic Ocean. Like, like when you talk about the worship of God, um, we're talking about deep, deep things. Let me, this is, this is not our uh, scripture anchoring scripture today, but I was just thinking about this during worship and want to read this to you. This is what Paul said. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. His ways are unknowable, unsearchable, untraceable. When we talk about worshiping God, we're talking about deep, deep waters. So how do we begin to wade into the waters of what it means that we are worshipers? And I want to I anchor us today uh, in the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be in Mark 12. If you've got your Bibles, turn there to Mark 12. Do you guys do the thing where if you don't have a Bible, someone will give you a Bible? Yeah. If you don't have a Bible, slip up your hand, and we'd love to give you a Bible. Yeah, cool. Got a few here on the front row. So we're in Mark 12, New Testament, second book of the New Testament. We also got it on the screen if you want to read along. All right. In verse 28. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, that's a big question, right? 
of all the commandments in the Bible, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all, with all your mind, sorry, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's a big, big statement. In fact, in Matthew's version of the same account, Jesus says the entirety of the scripture, the entirety of the revelation of God, the entirety of the law and the prophets and all that they tell us is all summed up in these two things. You can take the whole Bible and hang it on this phrase. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the Bible points back to these two statements. That's incredible. Pretty seemingly simple, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is what it means, in essence, to be a worshiper of God. About as simple as it was for me 18 years ago when I stood at an altar and looked my wife in the eye and said, I will love you with all of my heart for the rest of my life. Now, listen, I meant it. I meant what I said. I just had no idea what I was saying actually meant. <laughs> Anybody with me on that? All right, and then fast forward seven years later, and we're in, crowded around in the hospital room, around the bed, and nurses and a doctor. And the do- I will never forget this. The time stood still, and the doctor looked at me, and he said, one more push, and you'll be holding your son. Are you ready? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I thought I was until this moment right here. Are you giving me some options that I don't know about? Um, are you ready? Whew. And so I said yes. And to the best of my ability, I was, but I had no idea what it meant to raise a human being. Fast forward 10 years later, that human being is starting middle school this fall, and I'm definitely not ready for that. <laughs> Right, but to love someone means to orient your life around them. So worship in its most simple, basic definition means to attribute worth. To attribute worth. There is no relationship that I value more than the relationship with my wife and the relationship with my children. There is no relationship. If I attribute worth to the relationship of my wife, to the, if I value her in the way that I should... That means that I orient my life, my mind, my thoughts, my calendar, my schedule, my, around her in a very different way. If I attribute worth to my children, that means I orient my life in a very different way to value that relationship. In this season of life, that looks a lot like swim meets. Anybody on the swim team here? Oh my gosh, I'll be there Thursday night. Hope, pray to God that it doesn't rain delay and lightning because... Well, they won't let you out of a swim meet. They're like, go to your car and wait for an hour and a half and then come back to the pool deck. I'm like, what in the world have we signed up for? All right? It looks like swim meets, basketball practices. It looks like early mornings. My six-year-old daughter, Nora, she does this thing where she wakes up at the crack of dawn and comes wiggling in between my wife and me. And we're just like, oh, babe, daddy and mommy need to sleep a little longer. Be very quiet. About 30 seconds later, she goes, being so quiet. <laughs> like, yes, you are, sweetie. Thank you. 
right? But to love and to value and to attribute worth means we change our desires and our practices to, to orient. Now, when you talk about attributing worth to the source of all love, to the source of all life, to the source of all being, to the source of highest and truest reality itself, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? That changes everything about how we think with our mind, what we do with the emotions of our heart, what we do with our soul, and even our physical bodies. So how do we worship? How do we worship this unknowable, unseeable, unsearchable God? Before we talk about how, and we will talk about some very practical practices that the church has been engaged in for thousands of years, I want to talk about why. Because our temptation will be to focus on the ritual and miss the relationship. Now, 18 years ago when I married my wife, our, that ceremony was filled with all sorts of beautiful symbols and rituals that all pointed to a deeper meaning, right? My wife carried this beautiful bouquet of lilies because they had a special meaning to her in her childhood. She picked out her dress and helped have it made from scratch with a seamstress. It was stunning. It was beautiful because of some things that were special to her from her childhood. I looked pretty handsome myself in my tuxedo. <laughs> Candles that have a deeper significance. Blessings, prayers, taking communion. All of these metaphors and symbols and rituals that point to a deeper meaning. And let's not forget the rings. The beautiful symbol of an unending covenant of love. But let's face it, nobody gets married so they can get a ring, right? We've got the cart before the horse. If you're like, gee, you know, I've been really wanting a ring. I think I'll, give, I'll just sign up to love and live with somebody for the rest of my life. No, the rituals point to the relationship. The rituals are beautiful and the rituals are full of meaning. But they point to the relationship and they always have. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said it was good, right? But when he spoke it, the Genesis account, Genesis account is an amazing story that God spoke and said, out of the darkness, let there be light. Out of the chaos, let there be order. Let there be the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creepy crawly things. I love that. How did that make it in the Bible? Let there be creepy crawly things that crawl over the face of the earth. God spoke and said, let there be, and there was. But when God created humanity, he didn't speak. He formed. He put his hands in the earth. This is intimate God forms him. And then I think what happens next is one of the most stunning things in all of scripture. So there lays Adam and it, you would think God would say, get up, rise, walk. But God leans over him and breathes into Adam's nostrils. He breathes his breath, his essence into Adam. This is so beautiful and so intimate and so poetic. And, of course, Eve made in the same fashion to bear his image. And then the next thing God creates in the garden is a guitar. And he gives it to Adam. And he says, this is how you worship me. Sit down in the garden and sing songs to me all day long. Right? No. I'm a guitarist. I like songs. I'm so thankful that wasn't the next thing God created. See, God's intent was never for us to just worship him in a church. 
God's intent was for us to bear his image in the earth. This is why you're doing sign-ups to get people to go out into the earth and to bear his image. God's heart was always not for an institution, but for an organic family and a relationship. People who bear his image that everywhere you go on the mundane Monday morning, you're bearing his image that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. Carriers of his peace and his presence everywhere you go. Bearing his image. So God's not just looking for people to gather in a church, but to walk with him, attribute worth to him, bear his image in all the earth. So worship is so much more than what we do when we gather. But what we do when we gather is so important for how we worship God and walk with him in the earth. But I just want to say, as we turn the corner and we look at what are some of these practical practices that the, church is, that the church has been engaged in, I just want to wave the flag and beat the horde, the dead horse. I don't, totally don't get that silly <laughs> phrase, but you know what I'm saying, that worship practices are a means to an end. They are not the end in of themselves. Jesus said it like this, using garden language in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branch. You can bear no fruit, bear his image in Genesis. Bearing fruit is what that looks like. Jesus said, it's to the glory of God that you bear much fruit for me. You can't do that unless you remain and abide. That's the point. That's the end. That we remain, that we bear God's image. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you would have great church services, right? He didn't even say I've come that you would go to heaven one day. He said, I came that you'd have life this day, overflowing, abundant life. The people of God should be the most joyful people, peaceful people, powerful people with the greatest relationships and marriages, like life, overflowing, fruitful life. That's the image of a bountiful garden. That's why it takes your breath away to walk into a well-manicured garden. It's stunning, isn't it? Because it's the picture of the life we're called to lead. And worship practices help reorient, recalibrate, and reconnect us to the source, to the vine, to Jesus himself. But with that being said, let's, I want to talk to you today about three important practices that happen when we gather together. We are the family of God, and every family has rituals, right? And some of them are crazy. How many of you wear crazy Christmas sweaters at Christmas time? Or how many of you get new pajamas uh, before on Christmas Eve? You have, we have funny rituals, and we have formal rituals that we do as a family. But they are our rituals, and if, you don't, if you're not part of like our family and our tribe, you may not get our rituals. They may look a little funny on the outside, but then when you get to know the family, you're like, oh, this is a really sweet ritual. Well, the family of God has some rituals, and I want to talk to you about three of them today that the church has always done. That is singing. That is lifting our hands, and that is even shouting unto God. These are three family rituals that have always been a part of the local church. And I tell you, that looks a little weird sometimes when you come in. It's a big ask. I get it when you come in here, and there's already a lot that's happened on a Sunday morning just to get your family here, just to get yourself here. And then you got guys up here, like, looking at you going, come on, let's sing. Let's lift our hands. Let's shout to God. You're like... I ain't even had my coffee yet. You better shut up. I get it. 
And I want to tell you as a worship leader, that we're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, with our mind, with our, all of our soul and our being itself, our physicality. Man, my, my head and my heart is oftentimes so scattered. There's never been a worship service in 20 years of me leading worship services that I haven't had to come in and just simply make a decision and say, I'm going to worship God with my heart, with my mind, with my body itself, the way the scriptures tell me that I should. And I want to tell you that there's never been a time that I've not made that decision that my heart and my mind or whichever part of me is scattered reorients and reconnects to God himself and realigns. So, did you know, did you know that there are 400 references in the Bible to singing? Other faiths have looked at the Christian faith and actually called it the singing faith. 400 references, 50 of them are direct commands for you to sing. They have nothing to do with what you sound like when you sing and everything to do with what happens in you and through you when you sing. Did you know that when you sing, you are quite literally changing the atmosphere? When you open your mouth, if you've ever seen uh, an image of what happens to your vocal cords when you sing, I'll be honest, it's kind of gross looking, but your vocal cords oscillate and they make movement and that creates, that pushes air particles and the air particles hit the adjacent air particles, sending out vibrations that go to the hair fibers. Did you know you had hair fibers on your eardrum? That's what catches the air particles. Your brain interprets how many vibrations per second are happening, and your brain interprets the sound in the song. When people sing, you are literally, quite literally, changing the atmosphere. There have been studies that have been done where they study the heart rates of choir members, and so they get 60 people together, And for the first 60 seconds, you can imagine, their heart rates are all over the place. As they begin to sing together, their heart rates come into alignment. Singing literally unifies our physical bodies. Um, Let me read this so I don't get it wrong because it's kind of science-y. But when you sing, uh, it releases endorphins, which is a hormone associated with pleasure. Oxytocin, another hormone release been proven to alleviate anxiety and stress. Oxytocin also enhances feelings of trust and bonding, which, which explains why it lessens feelings of depression and loneliness. When we sing, all of that happens. I want to show you this video clip of this guy. Come on. Come on, we love that guy. You love that guy, don't you? You know that guy, don't you? You you know one person like that guy. You've been on a treadmill besides that guy before. You know, and at first you're like, give me a break. But then all of a sudden you're like, man, I feel like I got the eye of the tiger too, you know? I want to, like, there's something about people who are just uninhibited. Here's what I want to propose to you, that the practices that have been foundational to the church are not hype. It's not hype. And that's a, that's a critique, and I get it. I understand. 
of the modern worship movement. It feels like people are trying to hype me up. I want to propose, and sometimes they are, but I want to propose to you that it's not hype, it's actually human. It's just the way you were created. You think the most natural thing in the world for a mother and father to do with their child is to what? Sing silly songs to them. The most natural thing in the world for a child to do is walk into the house and sing when they do what they do. They're uninhibited. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every culture on earth has its own unique sound and its own unique song. And until just about 100 years ago, it was a very natural part of every people group to sing. But now we live in the day of American Idol and we live in the day of platforms and performers and they're like people who can do that and people who can't do that. And that is not a scriptural basis. Listen, 1 Peter 2.9 says that, don't you know that you, you, the people of God, are a royal priesthood called out of darkness to display his praises of his marvelous light. You are. The people on the platform are not here to inspire you with their gift. The people on the platform are here to empower you to be called out of darkness and to declare his praises and his marvelous You, the people of God, not the professionals on the platform. Amen? And, and if there's one critique that I do have of the modern worship movement, it is that it has, because of microphones and super talented people and full bands, that it's robbed the voice of the people of God. Sing this with me. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good, he's so good to me. Now just, that was less than 10 seconds. Tell, tell me, what do, you, what do you feel in your body just hearing that? That's, that's a real question. Unity. You feel peace. Somebody else? Community. Joy. Yeah, in 10 seconds. There's something powerfully human about being together and singing together, hearing one another. There are times, lots of times, that I come into church and I need to hear someone else singing from a place of faith. Because on that particular day, for whatever reason, I don't have it. It's such a communal and a family thing to gather together and be together and release a sound and song. And I want to challenge you as sons and daughters, you're called to sing. And if that's weird for you, go get some singing lessons. <laughs> Seriously. So in our worship school, we do this thing. And, uh, and of all the sessions we do, this is honestly my favorite. We have this vocal coach who comes in. And she gets people who are super insecure and just feel awkward singing. She pulls them up in front of the whole room and starts making them sing and starts coaching them. And a lot of it has to do with the stress they're carrying in their body and all of this. And in 10 minutes, these people sing and they sound like different human beings and the whole room is crying. In closing about singing, I'll tell you a story that marked me as a kid. There was this woman who, who tried out for a, a church choir, and she's monotone, okay? 
She couldn't hear melody, so she sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But in her head, she felt like she was hearing movement, but out of her mouth, there was none. Okay? This is a problem when you're trying to empower the people of God to sing. So the choir director, worship leader said, I'm sorry, I love your heart, but um, we, you, know, you won't be able to worship from the platform, but you can worship with the people. So she was heartbroken, of course. Goes home, lived in an apartment complex. Apparently, she had a purse like my wife's that was three stories long that everything's in. She's digging around looking for her keys and gets through two, in, in the process, gets through two verses of amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, goes in her apartment. 30 minutes later, this guy knocks on the door and she opens the door puzzled and says, can I help you? He's in tears. And he says, you have helped me. And she said, how did I help you? He said, when you came in, and you were trying to get into your apartment. I was over in the shadows behind the stairwell. And he said, I was contemplating taking my life tonight. And he said, when I heard you sing, it sounded like a choir of angels singing over me. And I was reminded of God's grace that has never, ever, ever once forsaken me. And it snapped me back into a reality. And I want to thank you for just singing. Now, I know that's a, I know that's a, big story that doesn't happen every day and maybe has never happened more than once in the history of life. But I want to tell you, you have a sound, you have a song, because you have a story that no one else has. And take part in this beautiful gift that has been the tradition of the people of God for thousands of years of singing God's praise. The next one is lifting our hands. Now that's one that most people... You know, church people are good with you know, kind of humming along or singing along. But, you know, when you start lifting your hands, that is just weird, right? Like, what, what are you doing? Are you trying to draw attention to yourself? Are you just trying to be super spiritual? Like, what are, what are we even doing here? And I want to give you a little scriptural reference for raising hands. We don't have time to look at all these passages. But if you were to do a study, and if any of you are interested, I'd be happy to email you these verses. Um, you would see that lifting of our hands is connected to all of these different emotions of the heart and postures of God. Sorry, I missed that. You can, you can take that down. Um, humility, repentance, praise, rejoicing, expression, dependence, worship, adoration, thanksgiving, brokenness, intercession, and faith and answered prayer, all of these emotions of the heart and attitudes and postures toward God have been symbolized by lifting of hands throughout the scripture. That's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. Do you know, again, that um, social workers who work with kids who have been in traumatic situations, um, they often, obviously, they act out. And social workers and therapists would say, look, this is not about their behavior so much but about what's going on in their brain because they've lived in traumatic situations. So you can try to just micromanage their behavior all you want, or you can help them actually rewire their brain in the midst of this acting out behavior. Here's how you do it. You got a kid that's acting out. Instead of going, stop doing that, stop doing that, what if you pull them aside and said, let's play a game together? And the kid's like, oh, what? What game? Reach up. Lift your hands. How many apples can you get out of the tree? Reach up. Reach up. And guess what happens? When they engage their bodies in this way, it actually helps them to stop fixating on whatever situation was triggering their emotions. And they, they loosen up. 
And then you can actually communicate that. I'm telling you, your body is fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God says, come together, lift your hands, church, I'm telling you, you worship God with your physical body the way the Bible admonishes us to, and you'll find that your heart and your mind begins to follow suit afterwards. Let's read these scriptures together. Uh, The ones about lifting hands. I got these guys all mixed up back there. I'm sorry. It's my fault, not their fault. I want to, let's say these together. Say them like we mean it. Clap your, whoa. Uh, No, no, no. Sorry. Back, back a slide. Guys, I'm just messing this whole thing up. Go back a slide. There it is. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. As I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Now, I want you to see this. Oftentimes, maybe we think of, you know, lifting our hands associated with victory. But look at this. Hear my cry for mercy. When you come in and you're just feeling like, oh, I need grace today. I need mercy today for my real life. I'm not talking about just playing church here, but my actual life. If you've called to give me John 10, 10, overflowing life, I ain't got it. I need mercy The psalmist says, lift your hands and cry for mercy. The second one, I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Can you show that image now, I, I, I follow Ben Hardman on social media, and I know what he has to say about the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> I'm going to have a conversation with him about that, uh, because I personally am a Steph Curry fan. I've never followed basketball a day in my life, but my 10-year-old son thinks he's a baller. I got news for him. Dad's 5'7". And <laughs> anyway, I think he ain't, he ain't going to make it to middle school, but I'm not telling him. You don't tell him. Um, but we, we, it was such an awesome thing, and he's a big Golden State fan. I honestly couldn't care less, but my son was a big fan, so we enjoyed watching the NBA championships. Now, this is a pretty common image, right? This is a champion. Steph probably just shot a three from downtown. The whole arena just erupted. It's the most natural thing in the world for an athlete to, like, lift their hands in victory, right? But look. Look at all those people in yellow shirts in the crowd. Those ones that's been just eating hot dogs the whole time that Steph's been out there sweating. Like, why they got their hands lifted? Well, they are, what are they doing? Why do, why, tell me, why do they have their hands lifted? They're sharing in the victory. They're sharing. They're saying, this story is my story. There's a connection to the story. Their champion has just overcome in their narrative that they're caught up in. And they're sharing in that. And the most natural human thing in the world is to be like, woo, Right? And it's funny, the freedom, oh, I set a timer so I wouldn't go too long, and oh my gosh, I'm going too long. Uh, (laughs) uh, The most natural thing in the world is to just respond. And it's funny that we can do this like in sporting events, but we gather together in the church and we feel so stiff, like, don't want to be irreverent, irreverent, you know? Like, sometimes it's irreverent to not respond. Amen? Amen. All right, let me, let me land this plane here. Um, but I want to I hit the, the, the next one. Uh, the Bible has so many references about shouting unto God. 
Now, that really, okay, okay, I'm good at singing. I'll, I'll maybe give you this on lifting your hands. But don't be shouting at me to shout at, what? What are we doing? This is crazy. I, I'll show this, show this uh, other video clip. One of the best college basketball traditions of all time, Taylor University's Silent Night Game. This is a Division II school. When they score their 10th point, the crowd is silent before that, and then they erupt. I really didn't see the dude in his underwear before I picked the clip. I really didn't. But then I thought, like, why is it okay for some dude to show up in his underwear to a public event? And everyone, you would, I know you would never show up in a public event in your underwear. But you kind of admire the guy that has the, like, hoopsfa to do that, right? Like, he just showed up in his underwear, and he's just going nuts. And it kind of, like, releases something in you, Right? Did you know that the man after God's own heart, King David, King David, I mean, in an an era of time that we don't even really understand what kind of um, power rested upon kings. It wasn't like in our democracy today. I mean, he was the king of the nation. And he stripped down to his underwear and danced before the Lord with all his might, with his physical body. And his wife did not know what to do about it. (laughs) And come on, wives, you wouldn't either. (laughs) And neither would I. I mean, he danced before the Lord. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And David was no pansy-wansy man. There's scriptures in Samuel where it says David stood back to back with his mighty men and slayed hundreds of men. Running men through with a sword. That's no pansy man. That's a man's man's by anyone's standards. And yet the scriptures are full of the places where David worshiped God with his heart. He was an emotionally healthy, masculine male. He wept before the Lord. He felt his heart was overflowing. He was in touch with his humanity, his emotions. They were whole. And he worshiped God with his strength, with all of his being. Not all the time. It wasn't like every Sunday morning he's back there stripping down and coming. I mean, that would be weird, okay? But I'm saying there are times in our life that we've got to release ourselves to be human. Yeah? I mean, you think about it, back in a closing, promise I'm closing, in that, to, the, to the wedding ceremony, there's a, there's a time, there's a time to be respectful, there's a time to be silent, and then there's a time to be expressive. I go, when my wife was walking down that aisle, another moment that I'll just never forget in my life, my world standing still, have my buddy stood up in the middle of that and been like, bro, you're getting married, I'd be like, shut up and sit down. What are you doing? This is not your moment, buddy, right? But 
When we go through the ceremony and with all of the beautiful rituals and their meanings and we stand and then the minister says, I now pronounce to you for the first time as husband and wife, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Yeah, as you should. It's actually disrespectful if you don't, right? Like, you sit in the ceremony and you take it in, but when you go to the reception, just get your butt out there and do the electric slide. Do the cha-cha-cha. Be human, right? Express, be alive, be free. And when the people gather together as the people of God, we are celebrating the greatest story that's ever been told. And the people of God have always been an expressive people. Always. We need to loosen up and not take ourselves so seriously. David said this. He said, I've never seen the saints forsaken. They are the glorious ones in the land. I love that. The saints, they're the glorious ones in the land. Guys, Grace Marietta, you are called to be a light in Marietta with healthy minds, healthy hearts, healthy souls, and healthy bodies. Loving the Lord your God, attributing worth, bearing his image in your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength. And I want to tell you, when you choose to worship God, and it's always a choice, it's always a decision, but when you choose to worship God the way he laid out for us in his scriptures, try it. Something will happen in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. 